We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. Joining us now is Ryan Wallace. You can hear him over on the VGK Insider Show on Fox Sports Las Vegas. Uh, Ryan, uh, safe to make the assumption that because Pete DeBoer and Kelly McCrimmon are speaking to the media today, that neither one of them is actually getting fired today, right? Well, I mean, I think obviously the fact that they'll have year-end media availability means that we have an opportunity to ask them all the questions about how you evaluate this season. And then I think that the evaluation process is ongoing. So right now, yeah, I think you're, you're spot on. Like, certainly there's not going to be, I would imagine, a press release after we get done <laughs> here today about any updates or changes. So um, it's going to be a long offseason for the Golden Knights to really hone in on what needs to change, if anything, for this team going into year number six. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this season's evaluated in the minds of Kelly McCrimmon, Pete DeBoer, um, and, and some of the players. Are you surprised that Bill Foley wouldn't make any changes if, in fact, they don't make any you know uh, changes to the front office or Pete DeBoer? Are you surprised that Foley, who has gone after the shiniest thing in terms of players every year, are you surprised that he wouldn't make a change after they missed the playoffs? I mean, it's surprising, but I, I think that, you know, you, you look at injuries and, and rightly or wrongly, I think that that's going to dominate kind of the reason this team missed the Stanley Cup playoffs. And, you know, if, if it were all things being equal and Mark Stone played 82 games and you were able to shed cap and Jack Eichel played 82 games and this team was healthy from day one, and stayed healthy all the way through 82 games, then I, I would be absolutely surprised that there would be no changes made if, the, if that team missed the playoffs. But I think that given the number of injuries, given the injuries to, to, to star players throughout the year, I think it's a little bit easier to um, stay pat here and say, you know what, we'll run it back one more time because I still believe in what we have in the room. Um, maybe it's obvious, but I, I'm assuming it's uh, Bill Foley does believe that this front office coaching staff and whatever roster they put together can win the Stanley Cup next year. I mean, that would be the, the reasoning why you don't make a change, right? Like you, you have to look at what doing something means and what not doing something means. And I think that, you know, if, if there are no changes, and again, like this is, kind of a, a standard procedure here in the NHL. We'll see what ends up happening over the course of the offseason. There is going to be change, at least appreciable change, on the ice next year for the Golden Knights because they will have to shed salary cap to be compliant and then fill out the roster, make some decisions on some players. But, you know, if you decide to run it back, that's a vote of confidence in and of itself. So it'll be interesting to see what that what the summer looks like for the Golden Knights in that regard. Are you of the belief that Logan Thompson can be a number one goalie on a contender next year? So I believe that Logan Thompson can provide you right now in this moment, a cheaper backup option in the NHL. I'm not going to sit here and say after 17 games of NHL experience down the stretch that Logan Thompson is ready to be the number one guy. Could he be there eventually? Sure. Do I feel like I need to see at least one season of backup duties, maybe where it's split a little bit more evenly, like 55-45? Yeah, I think I'd like that before handing the reins over to Logan Thompson. But I will say this about Logan. 
kid's confident. He believes in his abilities. And that belief will carry him through to seeing his full potential. That potential, though, we're not sure yet. Is it number one? Is it, is it serviceable backup? Time will tell. But I don't think 17 games is enough of a sample size to rest your entire season on it next year. So if you're giving me a percentage, how confident are you that Robin Leonard is a member of the Golden Knights next season? Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, just because of some of the reports, obviously, that we've heard since the season ended and Robin had season-ending surgery, we have not had an opportunity, obviously, to, to talk with Robin yet. Hopefully, uh, Robin will be one of the players made available today at Golden Knights' uh, end-of-season media availability. So, I think getting commentary from Robin specifically might lend me a little bit more information on, on what direction I lean there. But I would, I would like to believe in a world where Robin Leonard is this team's number one goaltender healthy and you have a Logan Thompson as your backup because you're going to need to trim cap space somewhere. And I think that would be the best place to start if you're the Golden Knights. Um, if you can get cheaper in the goaltending position and you can get healthier with Robin Leonard coming back ready to go next year, I think that's your best bet for the Golden Knights to have a bounce back season. If you were making the roster choices, what do you think would be the better way to go to try to get rid of some of the players on the edges like a Laurent Brossois or maybe even Evgeny Dodonov again, or do you think it would be better for this team to trade away one of the guys that makes a lot of money so you only have to lose one player off this team as opposed to maybe three or four to get under the salary cap? So I, I believe if Logan Thompson's kind of the guy, right, and, and I think we all can, can read the tea leaves there, then I think that the, the Brossois move makes a lot of sense because it gives you something that – Ordinarily, you you it just it gives you money that's essentially free because you believe in in what player is going to come in and replace him. From there, um, I think it depends on what you're trying to do. Like if you're just trying to to shed salary, then but you want to mostly run it back with this same lineup, then I think you go around the edges. If that's not the case, if you're trying to create an identity that plays best to what Pete DeBoer coaches and that is an ability to score after possession in the offensive zone, then I think maybe you make some tough decisions on players that are making a lot of money to, to be able to give yourself a little bit of wiggle room to not just subtract this offseason, but bring in players that fit that mold, bring in pl- players that will kind of get to the front of the net, those dirty areas, players that can score off of long offensive zone possessions, players like, say, a Corey Perry uh, type of player. So I think that it depends on what the Golden Knights want to do. Are they trying to tinker a little bit with what this team plays to a certain identity, or are they just trying to run it back and saying, you know what, we believe in the bones, and if they stay healthy, they'll be able to be elite. So I think that the philosophy dictates what the Golden Knights will do in terms of making the salary cap work. On the injuries that the Golden Knights had this season, I, I think the, the fairest way to look at it is that the injuries prevented the Golden Knights from being the Stanley Cup contender, top of the West, top of the Pacific type team that we expected. But to me, you can't really use the injuries as an excuse as to why you missed the playoffs entirely. Like they still should have been a playoff team, even if it was, you know, third in the Pacific or last wild card. Like they still had enough that they should have been 
in the postseason, but the injuries are fair to say why they couldn't beat, you know, Calgary this year. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, the, the injuries are a reason, but they're not the only reason, right? Like the, the Golden Knights power play was not good enough all year long. And when you are as injured as they have been, yes, it's difficult to find consistency, but you also had plenty of opportunity down the stretch with a power play that boasted Jack Eichel, Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty, uh, Alex Petrangelo. Like there should have been opportunities for the Golden Knights to pick up points. And I think throughout various points of the year, you could see this team gelling and finding ways to win. But then down the stretch, ever since the all-star break, really this team had, had been consistently inconsistent. So um, I, I look at special teams as a big, big factor here. Uh, injuries are a factor, but they're not the only factor. On the injury side of this, this team, they're not old, but they're not young. Most of their core, most of their best players are sort of between that 29 and 32, 30, which is, again, it's not old, but you're not exactly young. They had a lot of injuries. Mark Stone with back injuries sounds kind of scary. Max Pacioretty's had a lot of injury problems since he's been in Vegas. Like, they'll be, they should be healthier than they were this season, but isn't it fair to just expect, like, they're going to have injuries again. Like the idea that, Hey, if they're healthy, they're good to go. Seems like sort of a false idea to go in the next season with. Yeah. I mean, I don't believe you could ever really count on health in the NHL. Like it's, it's not a sport that, that allows players to get through an entire 82 games without some type of injury or being banged up or whatever the case. Um, I will say this. I think the rest, is going to be very, very helpful for this Golden Knights team. And I think a longer offseason gives you a better opportunity to bounce back from an injury-plague season. It gives you more recovery time in the offseason. It gives you longer to train in the offseason to get your body proofed and ready for the, for the grind of an 82-game season. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is the Golden Knights really through the first four years never had a long offseason. You go to the Stanley Cup final year one, yeah, you get bounced in the first round year two, and it's a bit longer, but I don't think that, that they were really running into fatigue at that point. Then you go to two Final Fours all during the pandemic. Um, to me, the offseason, the, the, the starts and stops, the unusual nature of the schedule kind of all led to this culmination this year of this team being run down and, and fatigued. So I think getting four months away from the rink the ability to work on your strength training, the ability to work on what you need to to come into into camp next year in tip-top shape should serve this team well, especially as you point out, they're not old, but they're not young. Game one hot takes. The Maple Leafs are going to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> so it's funny. I, I tweeted out before the game started, uh, are the Leafs going to get out of the first round with a question mark? And everyone started like, piling on that tweet while the Leafs were up two or three, nothing saying, relax, they'll screw it up. It's the Leafs. And I'm like, I didn't say, I didn't say they were going to do anything. I asked the question, like, come on guys, don't yell at me. If you're not reading the punctuation mark, geez. But uh, no, I think Toronto looked really good. I think that was the game that they needed in order to uh, instill a little bit of confidence. The fact that Mitch Marner scored a goal in the playoffs, which never happens literally, uh, is a, a big thing for Toronto. And I, I think that you're looking at a, a Tampa Bay Lightning team that falls under the same category. I was just talking about with the Golden Knights. They played a ton of hockey over the last two years. To me, they look slow. They look tired. And Braden Point is not right. So 
Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if Toronto actually wins the first-round series, but then again, it's the Leafs, so they probably won't. Game one hot take. The Wild can't start Marc-Andre Fleury again. Uh, the Wild have to score a goal, Tyler. As, as we've <laughs> talked about many times here, you're not going to win games if you don't score goals. I, I don't hang that one on Marc-Andre Fleury. Um, you, you, if, if the Wild don't score another goal, they're not going to win this series. I hate to break it to you. Is it somehow Marc-Andre Fleury's fault that for like four years now, the team he plays for can't score in the postseason? <laughs> Uh, no, it's not. Okay. Surprisingly enough. Okay. It's crazy. What if, should he just play left wing though, right? Like they need goals, put him at left wing or something and let the other, let Cam Talbot start. I, I'm sure that you can't do this, but it would be pretty awesome if Marc-Andre Fleury played out and Cam Talbot was in net and like Talbot goes on and, and has four straight shutouts and Marc-Andre Fleury scores seven right? goals. Right. Go. It'd be tri- then we could look back and say the Golden Knights really screwed up by trading away a play. Buff scoring left winger and Mark Andre Fleury. The thing they always you, needed, they traded him away. Can you imagine Robin Leonard in goal, put pitch and shutouts, and Mark Andre yeah. Fleury scoring two it, goals a game? Be, be great. Yeah, it'd be phenomenal. All right. He's Ryan Wallace again, Ryan Hockey Guy on Twitter. Hear him on the VGK Insider Show over on Fox Sports Las Vegas. Ryan, as always, we appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. So there's Ryan Wallace ahead of the Golden Knights press conference coming up in about 15 minutes. We'll see if they're on time, but about 15 minutes. Maybe we'll get some news before the show ends. We should have asked Ryan what Netflix show he would require his players to watch during the offseason. Coming up next, it's Bischoff's Briefs. Bischoff's Briefs. Play continues until each turn takes longer than open heart surgery, and the game ends when one person uses the last of their letters. Even though at this point no one likes that person, they're still referred to as the winner. Bischoff's Briefs. And that's how you scrabble. Ed is gone. Out to Golden Knights press conference to wrap up the season. Uh, Coming up in 20 minutes. Jerry Cantrell tickets from Allison Chains. He'll be at House of Blues in May, which it is May, four days away. Uh, so if you want to go see Jerry Cantrell, stay tuned. Today's Bischoff's briefs, though, going to baseball. One serious thing and one fun thing. Runs are down in baseball. Home runs are down in baseball. Uh, Jeff Passan had a story about a week ago that MLB teams are scoring about 5% less this season than last season. And home runs have dropped. Used to be about 5% of at-bats were home runs. Now we're down to 4% of at-bats are home runs. And apparently, the baseball itself is what's to blame. Uh, Some of the numbers that Jeff Passan had were looking at exit velocities and launch angles. So last year, if you hit a ball with an exit velocity of 100 to 102 miles an hour off the bat and had a launch angle between 20 and 35 degrees, 33% of the time, that ball was a home run. This year, those exact same uh, specific definitions of how you hit the ball, only 16% of the time. So you've basically cut that in half. Uh, There are some, you know, fastballs are being thrown less than ever. There's more sliders now. But most likely, the reasoning here is Major League Baseball has deadened the baseball, which is leading to less home runs and less total runs in games. The fascinating part about this is that there was a story in the offseason that Major League Baseball tried to implement deadened baseballs in season last year, but there was no consistency. And so some games last year 
were played with a deadened baseball. And some games were played with the baseball of the past, which was a more livelier baseball. And Major League Baseball probably did not get nearly enough crap for that, where they were messing with the baseballs on the fly and had different games with different baseballs. It's one thing if it appears to be this year, a league-wide situation where everybody's playing with the same baseball. But if you have eight games in a day, more than eight, 12 games in a day, and some of the games, six of them are being played with a dead in baseball and they end three to two, and some are being played with more lively baseball and they end five to four, that's a pretty significant difference on A, the betting markets, which is important here in Las Vegas, but also B, just guys' livelihoods, right? Somebody had a whole conspiracy theory that they tried to deaden the baseballs because there was such a great uh, hitting free agency class that they wanted to deaden the baseball so those guys would have worse stats and wouldn't get nearly as much money. That's a fun conspiracy theory, uh, and I hope that one's true. But yeah, so dead in baseballs, if you're watching baseball and wondering why nobody's hitting any home runs, that might be why. Now, here's the fun part of Bischoff's brief today. I have come up with a new rule for baseball. Yay, we're fixing baseball. I don't think I'm fixing it. I'm just adding slightly more fun to it. You, as a fielder, you can tag a runner's lost equipment, and that runner is out. So if a guy is running around the bases and his helmet comes off. Oh, but those are such great moments that he's running so hard that his helmet. Right. Comes now off. he's got to go back and get it. You can tag the helmet laying on the base. I, even if the guy, if he's already scored and his helmet's laying out there and you tag it, he's out. That guy's out. No doubt about it. Um, so I was actually, there's actually a rule for something like this that I was confused about because I was watching a game. A guy tried to steal second and he got tagged on the helmet. And he was out, but his helmet was in the process of coming off as he was tagged. And I was like, uh, what determines if you're safe or not, depending on where your helmet is. And apparently if the, if, if your helmet or anything you're wearing is in contact with you at all, you're still technically out if you get tagged by it. So as long as the helmet's still making contact with part of your body, you are out if ta- if that helmet gets tagged, but if the helmet's completely off and laying somewhere, it doesn't matter. You can't be out by tagging that. I think we should change that. So it would cause a couple of things. One, if you're running and your helmet comes off or a batting glove in your back pocket, whatever, normally they give them to the bat boy, but maybe something comes off, right? You wear that thing on your shin to protect yourself from foul balls. You hit off your own foot. If you're running and that thing flies off after you get a hit, you got to go back and get it. So what you have is guys having to run backwards on the bases to get their helmet or the batting gloves or whatever, which sounds like fun. Chaos on the bases is fun. It's not always good baseball, but chaos on the bases is always entertaining. This is going to create more of that. One other thing, though. Let's say like you're on second. Your teammate has a hit, right? And you're coming around to score and your helmet comes off. Your teammate can go grab your helmet. And as long as he grabs it and is standing on a base with your helmet, you're good. You can't get, your helmet can't get tagged. But, if your teammate grabs your helmet and he gets tagged out between the bases, double play, you're both out. Fixing, making baseball more fun, have more chaos on the bases. Be a lot of fun. Because now guys are running back to get their stuff. Teammates can pick it up. Hell, the third baseman can pick it up and run away and just have somebody throw him the ball and, and tag it and you're out. Okay, I like that a lot more. That that the that there's actually a second game of keep away going yes. on. Yes, anybody if something falls off of you. Anybody from any, well, somebody can't run out of the dugout, but anybody that's already on the field of play can run and grab that piece of equipment 
And then if they get the ball, they can tag you out. Or if they're on your team, they can run to a base and be safe. Chaos on the bases is fun. We need more of it. We would also have more instances of guys passing their own teammate on the bases, which is a big no-no, but that's also fun. Uh, We also are not automatically declaring them out when that happens. Uh, You have an opportunity to run back to the right base if you do that. Okay. This isn't the worst I this isn't the worst idea I've heard, which is you can run to any base you think you can make it to off of a hit. <laughs> That's the worst idea I've ever heard. That that one wouldn't be bad if third base was farther away. Yeah, exactly. Because like because like, like if you if you said, hey, if you can just run straight to second and you get a double, second's farther away from home plate than first and third. There's some legitimate risk involved with that was I might not make it to second. They might throw and me the out. Pitcher gets to play linebacker, <laughs> but third's just as close as first. So any like just little single I hit into the outfield, I'm running to third and now I can just score from third on the next batter. If you, if third place is far, if third base was far away, then that would make a little bit of sense, but no, not until if third base is the same length as first base, not a good idea, but second base would be fun. Let him run to second. Cause it, you could cons- you could be thrown out from center field on just a normal base hit up the middle if you tried to run straight to second. You could be a force out. It would be fun. What do you do if there's runners on base, though? Does this have to be only nobody on base? No, no. They, ha- they have to go. But, like, if there's a runner on first and you hit a single and you're like, well, I can run to second and get a double out of this, but that guy's also running to second. You can't move. He better be keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> So there we go. Uh, you can tag what's helmets the, when they fall off. What's the other one? Put the put the ball on a bungee. What? Oh, for the batter or for the pitcher? No, like both. You throw the you throw the ball, and the ball is on a bungee, so that if when they hit it, it goes boing doing 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 doing, and like ricochets all over the field. That sounds horrible. That sounds like a the safety only, hazard. The only way for it to be a home run is if you break it off the bungee. That sounds like a safety hazard. Saying you're trying to t- cut down home runs. We're going to have more orbital fractures like Joel Embiid. Coming up next, John Von Tobel joins the show. This is the Press Box with Grady and Bischoff. Joining us now is John Von Tobel. You can follow him on Twitter at MeJVT. Um, let's, all right, let's start with the 76ers. How many minutes should DeAndre Jordan play the rest of the series? Can you can you allow it? Can we do negative minutes? Like, is that a possibility? Um, but look, he he really. I guess you can make an argument that you want to put him out there to a certain extent to like you know match some size of Sam Adebayo. And while it didn't look great in terms of just the box score, there were like five possessions in which he played somewhat well defensively and was a little aggressive. Um, but like, you, you just you. He can't be out there, man. When you watch him play, he is so lackadaisical. You know, there's drop coverage, and then there's DeAndre Jordan just planting his roots in the middle of the paint, <laughs> one foot from the basket and not even moving. You know what I mean? Like, he just – I don't think he's got a space here. And the other part of it, too, guys, is if you don't play him, it allows you to go small. And while it didn't work out yesterday, like, that's going to be the game plan, right? The, the Heat allow you to take three-point shots. They were last in the league in opponent three-point frequency. They were last in the league in open attempts allowed. The defender within four to six feet far you know, away. Like that's what you want to do. You want to go small. You want to shoot. Now, do you want George Yang to go 0-7 from three-point range? No, but I think that's the way that you attack this. So I would say not very many if you can get away with it. So if you are Philadelphia right now, aside from just benching DeAndre Jordan, like what do you have to do to try to steal game two before you go back home and maybe get him beat back? 
I mean, I'm throwing on film of Harden's last year in Houston, not like the one where he, you know, came in fat and left eventually for <laughs> Brooklyn. Like the last year, because if you guys remember, right, they had Russell Westbrook, they got Robert Covington, and they just went uber small. And they were just like, screw it. We're just going to shoot 45 three-point attempts a game, and we're just going to try to win the math battle there. And I think that's just what you do. You, you can talk about trying to match the size against Bama to Bio, but who cares about that? What you want to do is try to just win at this point the number battle, which is let's just shoot more three-pointers than they do. Let's hit at a decent enough clip because they do have the guys to do it, right? I mentioned Yang going 0-7 from three-point range yesterday, but he's actually a 40% three-point shooter this season. Tyrese Maxey was a 42% three-point shooter. Tobias Harris and, of course, Danny Green both shoot about 37% from three, and then you have whatever's going on with Harden, which, you know, that's another discussion. But you have the ability to put five guys out there play five out and just shoot like crazy. And I think that's kind of what you do. And I know that people don't like to hear that because that's like, you know, that's the evil form of basketball. But I think when you're up against it here, when you don't have Joel Embiid and you have a team that is willing from a defensive philosophy standpoint to give you those three-point shots, that's what I'm doing. I'm just going super small and I'm shooting the lights out potentially and I'm trying to steal one. When Miami doesn't have Kyle Lowry and they can just, you know, bring Victor Oladipo in for 27 minutes and don't even have to use Duncan Robinson despite not having Lowry, is that depth, is that uh, like the typical, hey, this team was a great regular season team that you don't think can win in the postseason, or can that actually mean something for them winning a title this year? Yeah, I think it can mean something to a certain extent. I just think, too, like it shouldn't be lost yesterday that the Heat were actually really bad in their half-court settings. Like, they were not good on offense without Kyle Lowry out there. They had an offensive rating in the half-court at 87.2. The difference was was that in transition, they, they killed Philadelphia. They had a transition offensive rating of 163.6. Uh, off of steals, they averaged two points per play. Off of live rebounds, it was an offensive rating of 142.9. So they just killed them when they were going up and down the floor. But I, I think you still need, like, the depth helps in terms of your scoring overall and the ability to, like like you said, to offset minutes. Like, hey, you know, Duncan Robinson, the guy that we paid, who was at one point considered to be one of the best shooters in the NBA, uh, is now an afterthought unless he hits eight three-pointers in game one against the Atlanta Hawks. Like, it, it helps to a certain extent. But I thought there were times, like, there's a reason why they trailed at halftime to Philadelphia. That, you know, that's going to get lost in the final score. But the reason why they did is because they were terrible in their half-court offense, and they eventually started to get up and down the floor. And I think you see that in terms of missing Kyle Lowry. So they, they definitely need him out there. He's their point guard, obviously, but he's also so good at directing that offense. And this is already a bad half-court offense with Kyle Lowry. And without him, I think you really saw yesterday, despite the big win, that they were really lost in that area. In Grizzlies Warriors, is the more important takeaway from game one that Memphis blew it a game where they didn't have to face Draymond Green for half of it and they had a chance to win on a layup at the buzzer? Or is it more important to say Memphis was pretty close, this is going to be a long series and they've got a legitimate shot? No, it's the first one. They, like you, you have to win that game if you're the Memphis Grizzlies. There, there's no if ands, or buts about it. You have to. And it's not only just that, right? It's the fact that Draymond didn't play. It's that Jaron Jackson Jr. went absolutely nuclear from three-point range, and you got an incredible scoring output, output from him in that game. I think what he ended up with, 31, I know that was his minutes, 33 points on 10 of 18 shooting. He was 6 of 9 from three-point range. It's that, that Clay Thompson in this game was terrible. He had 15 points on 16 and 9 of shooting and 6 to 19, and he missed the two free throws at the end to give you a chance to win that game. <laughs> Everything the Warriors did were screaming, please win this game for like win this game, Memphis, just go ahead and win it. And they didn't do it. And that's a really big deal for me. So I think it's the first one, because when you look at this overall, is Steph Curry going to go eight to 20 from from the floor again? Probably not. Is Clay Thompson going to go six to 19 again? Probably not. 
Is Jaron Jackson Jr. going to do what he did in terms of a scoring output? Probably not. And so all of those things happen. You still could win that game. What happens when water finds its level? The Splash Brothers become the Splash Brothers. Jordan Poole maintains some semblance of efficient play. And all of a sudden, Jaron Jackson Jr. kind of comes back from the high that was game one. I think it's a really big deal that they didn't win that game because the Warriors, as we know, are much more experienced. But that's an opportunity you got to take because that's a difference, right? In a series that potentially looked like it was going to go six, now we're talking about potentially a series that goes five because you didn't win that first game at home when you had the best opportunity to do so. How much, how big of a deal it is, maybe how much blame should John Morant be getting for those last two possessions where he obviously misses the layup right at the buzzer, but the one before that down by one, he got stripped by Steph Curry in the paint too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Steph Curry blocks him, right? I think, like, the, the is, it, is it irony that Steph Curry actually, like, smacked away a <laughs> shot to eventually win the game, made a defensive play? Like, he's not considered a good defensive player? Like, I wouldn't blame Morant a lot. I think when you saw what was going on yesterday, like we mentioned, or actually it was Sunday, right? When you mentioned, like, Jaron Jackson Jr., how good he was, and then you look at the rest of the scoring, and you're like, oh, it was just John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. who were doing anything whatsoever, right? Desmond Bain only had nine points. Dylan Brooks only had eight, and he was three of 13 from the floor. Uh, outside of those two, it was uh, San Jose State basketball legend Brandon Clark who was actually performing at a really high level, not anybody else. So I, like, I don't want to blame him too much because at the end of that game, you could clearly see their only offense was flowing through John Morant, and that's about it. And like, you just didn't know where else they were going to go because who else on that floor was going to create their own offense outside of Morant, you know? So the other part of this game, uh, do you agree with Draymond Green when he says the reason he got a flagrant two and an ejection was because of a reputation that he's Draymond Green? Yeah, I think that kind of happens a little bit with like I think that, I don't think there are many people out there that watch basketball a lot and saw that play and were like, yeah, that's a flagrant two. I think it's it's Draymond Green and he he does have that reputation. So more often than not, they're going to lean toward him being a little bit heavy handed when it comes to his fouls. And thus, he, he gets called for a flagrant two there. So I, I kind of agree to a certain extent. And, and here's the thing, too, man. Like, he doesn't help his own case when he's, like, dancing on the sideline or the baseline and doing whatever he's doing before he's going back <laughs> to the locker room. And then, like, I don't know if you guys saw yesterday on TNT, uh, they asked him about it. Ernie asked him about that. Like, hey, you know, what was the decision about dancing on the baseline? And he, like, he completely avoids it. He's like, I just wanted to go jab up my guys and go back to the locker room. Like, no, why were you dancing on the baseline? <laughs> Like you can't sit there and go, ah, it's a reputation thing, and then add to your negative reputation by dancing on the baseline before you go back into the locker room after getting ejected for a flagrant two. So I would say yes, but I also think we have to look at this realistically and realize there's a reason why he has that reputation, and part of it is because of his own actions. Uh, is Milwaukee really that good defensively to force so many Boston misses inside the arc? Uh, I think so, I, and it's part of their philosophy, right? Like they play drop coverage, they're – they're kind of like, you know, and Miami doesn't play drop coverage as much, but their philosophy is the same. You are not going to get to the rim. You're not going to get to within four feet. We don't want you. We don't want you to take those easy shots. It's why in years past, it's why in that loss, if you remember in game two to Chicago, they're playing pretty soft drop coverage and DeMar DeRozan's just stepping into mid-range jumpers and he absolutely destroyed him in that game. But it's because they're so focused on keeping you out of the paint. But at the same time, they, they can get a little bit more aggressive. And you saw that, I think, in game one against Boston. Like, they're picking up guys the full length of the court. On those drops, they're dropping a little bit tighter as opposed to pre getting pretty loose with it and falling back about three or four feet. You know, they're getting pretty tight on those drops and not allowing guys to get to the basket. And that's what happened. You know, when you have 10 makes in, inside the arc, all of them at the rim, but you only shoot, like, I think it was 45%. Uh, Boston did at the rim in that game. That's an incredible defensive performance, and they have the ability to do that. They allowed the fifth fewest shots at the rim 
in the regular season. Like, this is exactly what Milwaukee is. And I thought, too, Tyler, like, I thought it was kind of a shock to the system where if you look at it from the perspective of you played four games against Brooklyn, and it's one of the worst defensive teams in the postseason, they're not as physical, they're not as stout inside, and all of a sudden you have Giannis Antetokounmpo, who's a help defender in game one, who's coming over and smacking shots away and you know really getting aggressive in terms of contesting shots within four feet. That's a really big difference for them, and I think that's kind of what you saw. But, yes, like Milwaukee is that good. Are they going to hold them to 45% at the rim and 10 shots inside the arc again? Probably not, but like, was it a surprise that they did it? I don't think so. So Boston presumably is going to play better at some point. They'll, they'll win a couple games at least in this series, if not come back and win it all together. But is it wrong of me to to look at game one, look at Milwaukee win easily and think Giannis and Kevin Durant aren't even on the same tier? I, I, I mean, I guess I would say yes to a certain extent. I, I think – I do think Giannis is the better player, but only because of what he provides defensively, right? So I guess to your your point, then that would that would actually support your argument, where Giannis is clearly the better two-way player, and you can equate him offensively to Kevin Durant. Are they the same in terms of the way that they score? No. But are they just as effective in terms of their ability to? Yes. So then you give the edge to him defensively, and I guess you get to the argument where, like you're talking about, he is on another tier than Kevin Durant. I, I, Giannis is incredible. like, And what makes him more incredible, because I like player development and stories like that, what he did to his body, what he's done to his game, what he has changed from day one in the NBA to where he is at now, that's what makes him even more incredible, how much he's improved himself to become this type of player. So I guess, yes, like I started in range where I was like, ah, maybe not, but I think to your point, what he provides defensively would probably put him above Kevin Durant. I'm glad you talked yourself into that. Yeah, you, you see that? I mean, look, hey, the, cool, the, the good thing about you always got to – you're never the smartest guy in the room. You always got to tell yourself that. You always got to be open to being wrong. And I was open to being wrong. Then. All right. And last one before we go, are we looking at a five-game series where Luka Doncic averages like 40 points, but the Ooh. Mavericks have no shot? I, I don't know. I think, like, I, I never want to overreact to one game, but that was not great. <laughs> that was not great for, for Dallas in that game because they were just, it was such a slog in some of those half-court settings when Doncic didn't have the ball in his hand. And, and there were a couple where he gave the ball to Spencer Dinwiddie and kind of waved him off. You're like, do it, I'm exhausted. Like, just, like run something and see what happens. And, and they didn't. But I will say this. Dallas is a really good three-point shooting team. And they got back to within, I think they cut it to four at one point, right? I think it was like 51, 47, something like that. Because they, they are so much better at shooting the ball. And there's, again, talking about that math equation, if they're going to continue to shoot as well as they do – then you're going to be able to make up that difference in the ability not to score in half-court settings, and you're going to be pretty close in some of these games and maybe steal some of them. And like players like Dinwiddie and Brunson are better than they showed. So I would say this is still a pretty tight series. It goes about six or seven games. I like this Dallas team a lot. Well, he is John Von Tobel. You can follow him on Twitter at MeJVT. As always, John, we appreciate it. Anytime, man. Thank you. So, JVT on the NBA playoffs as we are a game in to each of the second-round series. And now you got a shot to win tickets to see Jerry Cantrell from Allison Chains. He will be at the House of Blues on Saturday, May 7th, this Saturday, 9 p.m. You can buy tickets to Ticketmaster or you can win a pair from us right now. 702-364-1100 is the phone number. 702-364-1100. We will take caller number eight at 702-364-1100. You're locked in the press box. <laughs> It's my favorite type of sound. The the pre, the guy the member of the press does all the work, and the athlete just goes, "Okay, yeah, that right. sounds good. You're right. <laughs> good question." Um, 
<laughs> Congratulations to Leon. Leon run one tickets to go see Jerry Cantrell. Uh, on Saturday, Jared, we have more of those to give away this yes, week? Yes, we do. All right, so more Jerry Cantrell throughout the week. Yesterday, the Las Vegas Aces had media day. Caught up for a couple minutes with their general manager, Natalie Williams. So you guys waved two of the draft picks you guys did. What does that say big picture-wise about the WNBA and the roster spots available and, and just yep. what it means for this league? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to make a spot in this league, and especially for rookies, right? Kids that have not really established themselves. Um, we need to expand, <laughs> first and foremost, but bottom line is you still have to, it's great to get drafted, but you still have got to make the roster, um, and it is very, very hard. Was there anything for uh, Maya or Kayla that you would have liked to have seen them do different in the last roughly month or so that they would have had a spot on this roster? Um, you know, a lot of it comes down to positions and what you need. And for Kayla, that was unfortunately for her. I mean, Becky has decided to go with a veteran point guard in Colson, which is a great, um, I think, thing for the team and for what we're trying to do here in Vegas. And in regards to Maya, um, you know, amazing talent. I think she's got a very, very high ceiling, but she's got to continue to learn how to be a pro and do pro things. And um, I just hope somebody picks her up. She's a great young lady. Um, but what we're trying to do here, it's not exactly what Becky wanted to do. And um, I think we're going to go on a more veteran. You know, we're going to keep two of the rookies. Mm-hmm. But with everyone else, we're going to have more of a veteran team. There's a, a bit of a contrast between the way this team played last year with Bill Lambeer versus what Becky is yes. wanting to do. Um, well, first off, are you tired of answering questions about the difference between Lambeer and, no. and Becky Hammond? No, no not, not at yet? all. Not no. yet? Okay. It is very different, and Becky's going to push the pace, and there's going to be a lot of movement. And, uh, and uh, definitely the, the biggest thing is the pace. There's going to be... Uh, credible movement, a lot of sharing the ball, as was showed last night in our preseason game. You know, our veterans were in double figures and they only played half the game. <laughs> so um, it's going to be a, a nice change. I'm curious because the Aces, the last couple of seasons under Lambeer, were still one or two in offensive rating mm-hmm. pretty much every year. Yep. But it seemed like postseason wise, maybe it was easier to defend them when you play them five times in a row, four times right. in a row. Is that something that you think is true, that the way the team was playing last year compared to this year, that maybe this year it'll be harder to defend in a series when it's the same team over and over and you have more time to prepare or scout for a specific team? Well, I think when you're not completely relying on two or three people to score, when it doesn't matter who's in the game and you've got to be prepared for an incredible shot to go up and and the cutting and the movement that Becky's put into this offense, um, it's going to be hard to defend. And I think we're very confident in... Um, you know, what we're bringing with our four Olympians and then the veteran crew and our two rookies. And then on the defensive end, they've been, they were very good with Lambeer defensively, but a lot of it was rim protection. When you have Aja Wilson, Lem Cambage, it's hard to get layups. How, how does that sort of stay in place when it's a slightly different style and more open and and a little (laughs) bit smaller, I guess. Yeah. Better defense, better defense. So that has been one of Becky's First and foremost, you've got to defend and you've got to rebound. And so I think just setting the tone in training camp has really established how that is going to be different this year in in the team. Um, And I think people will notice it. It showed last night. We did a good job at shutting Minnesota down last night.
That was Natalie Williams, the general manager of the Las Vegas Aces, talking yesterday at the Aces Media Day. Um, Still a bit humorous that they waived the two players they drafted at 8 and 13 after trading next year's picks to get 8 and 13 in this year's WNBA draft. And a month later, those two are no longer on the team. Uh, But maybe a good sign for this year that they think they're good enough. They don't need the 8 and 13th picks, but we shall see. No Bill Lambeer. And now a new team in there. Pete DeBoer is talking to the media right now. I cannot wait to chop up sound today. I have a feeling he's going to get eviscerated for some of what he said today. Um, he said about Robin Leonard. If you remember, Pete DeBoer, when asked about Leonard's health late in the season, said that he's healthy. And like three days later, Robin Leonard was having was going to have season-ending surgery. Pete DeBoer said today, when I used the word healthy, that was the wrong word to use. And that was on me. (laughs) So Pete DeBoer described a guy that he probably knew at the time was going to have to have surgery. It was just a matter of if it happened in season or after the season described him as healthy. And then only after the season is coming out and saying, well, he wasn't healthy. I lied to everybody. And the reason he's doing that is because it looks like the entire press conference today, because Kelly McCrimmon still has to talk, but it looks like the entire point of today's press conference, the entire theme is simply going to be, we were too injured to make the playoffs. Well, it's not our fault. This team's great. I'm a great coach. I'm a great front office. I'm a great general manager. It's a great roster. We were just too hurt to make the postseason. So it appears as though they are going to use that as the excuse. That is the number one theme of today from the Golden Knights. And to make sure that's true, Pete DeBoer has to go back in time and be like, yeah, that time I said Robin Leonard was healthy. Actually, he wasn't healthy at all. He needed like 16 surgeries. Let me just tell you guys something now. If I say something about somebody's health, don't believe it. (laughs) Which is, I mean, listen. We kind of haven't believed them for the entire time because they describe everything as lower upper body, even if the guy lays on the ice for 10 minutes. But in all seriousness, anytime DeBoer describes an injury, you've got to be like, he's lying. 